Hey, and you can turn in your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 13 with me this morning. Luke 13. And if you wouldn't mind standing with me one more time as we read Scripture together. Luke 13, verses 10 through 20. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant, Because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each one of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. It's the word of the Lord. You may be seated. For several weeks now, we've been talking about the mission of our church, which is to declare and to demonstrate the gospel of Jesus in all of life. And we've been talking about that mission within the context of the ministry of reconciliation. That's a phrase that the Apostle Paul uses to describe the work of gospel ministry that we are all called to engage, this ministry of reconciliation. So for a quick refresher on this phrase and where it comes from, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20. You don't have to turn there, but 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20 The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And over the last few weeks, we have talked about different elements of this ministry of reconciliation. Um, We've talked about just the message of the gospel itself. Uh, We've talked about sharing your personal story of what Jesus has done in your life. We talked about that within the context of the, the word witnessing. Um, if you've grown up in the church, especially if you've grown up in the evangelical church, you have heard about witnessing your whole life. But if you haven't witnessed something, you can't be a witness. 
It's not just about regurgitating some prescripted presentation. It's about telling people about what Jesus has done in your life. And so we went through all of that. Um, We talked about the process of renewal um, that we find in Christ. Not only are we saved from our sin, not only are we saved from death and hell, um, not only are we offered new life in a heavenly sense, in a restored sense, but even now... Jesus is making us new um, through the process of sanctification. We've also talked about the work of the Holy Spirit, which is in the middle of all of this. The Holy Spirit leads us and guides us. Today, we're going to talk about the kingdom, um, which is something that Jesus talks about a great deal throughout his ministry. In fact, the essential gospel or good news message of Jesus was this. The kingdom of heaven has come near. That was it. That's what Jesus declared. That's what he sent his disciples out to declare. The kingdom of heaven has come near. And that because of that, our response should be to repent and believe that good news. So today we're going to be digging in that into that a little bit within the context of our text, Luke 13. Uh, One of the things that is incumbent... In the text we just read in Corinthians is that if we are being ambassadors of reconciliation, if you are in Christ, you not only have passed from death to life, but you have been spiritually born again into a new world. You've been born again into this kingdom of God. And now you exist not as a citizen of this world, but as an ambassador to this world, an emissary of a place That is very different from the place where we live. And so much of the teaching of Jesus, so many of these scriptures we looked at today, the passage we read from Hebrews is all pointing to this truth that the new life we find in Christ is very, very different from the life we find in this world. Jesus spent a great deal of his three years of earthly ministry talking about the kingdom. Many of the parables are about the kingdom where he's saying it's like this or it's like this. He's trying to describe it. But there's a lot of confusion. The Jews in Jesus's day had a very specific understanding of the word kingdom because for Jews in Jesus's day, the word kingdom related to one specific thing, and that was the kingdom of Israel. To them, when someone came talking about a new kingdom, they had to be talking about Israel, right? That had to be the thing that they meant. At this point in time, in the first century, there was functionally no kingdom of Israel. If you remember your history, the Romans are the occupying empire at this point in time. There's no kingdom of Israel. Instead, the Romans are the leaders. Caesar is king. And even though there were some lesser kings and some lesser kind of regional leaders throughout the area, like King Herod, all of these people were ruled by Rome. Even Herod had a limited scope, and he served at the pleasure of Rome. So as far as the Jews were concerned, the Messiah that would one day come He would be a new King David, right? He would bring about a new kingdom of Israel. David in the Old Testament was a military leader. He was the one who really established Israel. He really put them on the map 
as a major player politically and militarily. So when this prophecy said that there would be a messianic king coming from the line of David, a savior king coming from the line of David, a first century Jew would have naturally thought... A human king is going to come along who loves the Lord and follows the Lord and is here to reestablish the kingdom of Israel as a kingdom that's no longer under the rule of Rome, but as a kingdom that is under the rule of God. So they would have been envisioning an actual physical socio-political state. But the reality was that the kingdom that Jesus came announcing was something very different but also something far better. So so what is this kingdom that Jesus is talking about? What does it mean for us? How do we engage it? Uh, Let's take a moment and look back at Luke 13. Um, This is a somewhat obscure episode in the life of Jesus in that it's not something I feel like you necessarily hear talked about a lot. It's not something you hear preached about a lot. It easily gets overshadowed Um, by other significant moments in the life of Jesus. And so it'll it'll get pushed aside by things like the parable of the Good Samaritan or the rich young ruler or Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well or the prodigal son or things like that. But but today's text um, has some incredibly important things that we need to see and apply to our lives as well. First of all, Jesus is teaching in the synagogue Um, This would have been a Saturday. This would have been a Sabbath day. So he's effectively preaching at church. I think sometimes we can have this vision of Jesus that he is constantly out on a hillside somewhere. But no, Jesus was a Jew. He was a good Jew. And so, of course, Jesus is in the synagogue on a Saturday. He is declaring the word of the Lord. Um, As Jesus heals the woman in the midst of this crowd... The ruler of the synagogue, as we saw, is indignant because Jesus has done this thing on the Sabbath. And there were all of these rules about what could be done and what could not be done on the Sabbath. Many of those rules, though, did not come from the Old Testament. They don't necessarily exist within the Torah or the first five books of the Bible, the law of God. Many of these rules regarding the Sabbath had come along years Later, They've been added over time. So where the Old Testament simply says, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. The Jews of Jesus' day had added laws to specify and to detail out what it actually meant to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And in many ways, this was oppressive to people. I remember years ago uh, when Lindsay and I lived in Dallas, uh, we lived fairly close to an Orthodox Jewish synagogue. And so on Saturdays, you would see people walking to church because apparently one of the things is you can't operate a vehicle on the Sabbath, which if if the goal is to do the least amount of work possible, it seems like the hardest thing you could do would be to walk from miles away to come to synagogue on the Sabbath. And yet that's what people do. This is one of those things that has developed over time. It's not something you find in the Torah. It's something that has been added. And so what Jesus is doing here, as he does so often, is he's challenging, he's poking holes in this stuff and, and, and drawing out the truth that the heart of God, especially the heart of God regarding the Sabbath, 
is that you would be brought into a true state of rest, that it is for you. That's one of the things Jesus says, that the Sabbath is, is for you. It's so that you would have some, some time during your week to have freedom from all of the things that weigh you down, from all of the things that burden you. That there would be a time when you come together in worship of God and recognize that because God is real and because these things are true, then we don't have to be burdened by all of those other things throughout the week. Like we don't have to be controlled by fear and anxiety. Like we don't have to be worried about what the future holds. So much of Jesus' teaching is pointing us to that truth that there is freedom to be found in this life. If you really believe that God is real, if you really believe that he sent his only son Jesus to die for us, so that we might have life, so that we might be a part of his family and sit at his table. If you believe those things are real, the result of that should be this release of burden. Because it's a complete release of control. Suddenly, you aren't responsible for your salvation. You aren't responsible for success in life. Suddenly, you aren't responsible for what happens um, to your children or, or, or to your relatives or your family. What you recognize is that God's actually the one in control of all of those things. And he's called us to like joyful obedience to him, right? There are things he has for you to do. There are responsibilities that he desires for you to take ownership over in your life. But ultimately, he is the king The desire that he has is that you would be allegiant to him as the king of your life. Not just as this far away distant deity that I sometimes pray to when I really need something. But the one who actually controls who you are and how you live and how you make decisions. The gospel should free us from all of these worldly things. And the Sabbath should be this time when we come together and experience in some sense, in some little piece, some little glimpse, like what this new creation could ultimately be like. Life together in Christ, worshiping God forever. But to a Pharisee or a religious leader in Jesus' day, this would have been unthinkable. Right? That somebody would do the kinds of things that Jesus had done. And yet Jesus has actually broken no law in a biblical sense. Jesus has not done anything wrong. He's merely defied the paradigm through which the leaders in the synagogues, the Pharisees, the scribes saw the world. And one thing that we miss sometimes about the Pharisees, because the Pharisees are made out to be the bad guys in the New Testament. Um, And there are many groups that are talked about in the New Testament. There are the Pharisees, there are the Sadducees, there's a group called the Zealots, there's a group called the Essenes. There are all of these different sects of people who are trying to follow God in different ways. And, And in this day and age, I think what we don't realize often is that the Pharisees would have been seen as the good guys. Like the Pharisees would have seen, uh, been seen by the people as these are like the truly orthodox religious leaders. Like these are the ones that are truly trying to lead us to the heart of God. And, and yes, there's a lot of legalism there. And yes, there are a lot of rules there. But that same thing even happens today in the church. Right. So, so people would have really been looking to these guys as if anybody like has the truth, it's the Pharisees. Then Jesus comes along and says, well, no, 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 wait a second. Let me, let me like redirect your focus. Let me, let me change your paradigm. 
Let me reframe this for you. This is a huge part of what he is trying to do here. Just notice like the absurdity of this whole scene. Like an incredible thing has occurred. Jesus has healed this woman. Like this woman has has come in, stooped over. It says she's been stooped over for years. And then Jesus, by speaking to her and touching her, straightens her out in the midst of this crowd of people. So can you imagine just, just being a fly on the wall in that room and seeing something like that happen? Imagine seeing that kind of thing happen. Can you imagine just the commotion, maybe, maybe a little bit of confusion, maybe, maybe rejoicing? Like, can you just imagine like the hubbub that would have been going on in that room because of what happened? Because he speaks to her and touches her. And this woman we know who comes in here every week, like we've seen her for years, now she is standing up straight. In the midst of like going, this incredible thing has happened and rejoicing over this thing, the absurdity of the ruler of the synagogue kind of going, hey, everybody, calm down, calm down. Like this, we don't do this on this day as if this is something that happens regularly, right? It's not like on Tuesdays every week, crippled women are suddenly not crippled anymore. Like this isn't happening. But he has no paradigm for this, right? This isn't the framework that he was given. This isn't the lens through which he was taught to see the world. And so rather than rejoicing, rather than praising God for what happened, he feels like he has to maintain order. He feels like he has to kind of, um, you know, like settle the room down in some way. The whole thing is just absurd. He says to the crowd, you can come here any other day of the week and be healed. Just not today. On the Sabbath. Like the day that is supposed to be the day of like release from your burdens. The day that's supposed to be about the weight of the brokenness of this world being lifted off of you. This guy knows the Torah. He knows the Old Testament, right? So the absurdity of him going, no, 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 this isn't the day that we do this kind of thing is amazing to me. This remarkable and supernatural thing is occurring, but his limited paradigm doesn't have space for it. So Jesus basically rebukes the ruler in verse 15. He says, you hypocrites, does not each one of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. One thing that might stick out to you there is just that all that talk of Satan. Like this woman, we would look at her and go, she's crippled. She has some kind of a a medical issue. Um, In this day and age, ailments, afflictions were often seen as demon possession by people. And certainly Jesus encounters people who are demon-possessed, right? There are like several different instances where Jesus calls out demons from people. Um, But then there is also a very general sense in which these things exist because of the work of Satan in our world, right? Just illness, brokenness, human frailty, death, sin, all of these things exist because of the work of the enemy in our world. And it is ultimately him that Jesus will vanquish eternally. And ultimately, Jesus, through 
the full restoration that is coming in him will make all of these things a thing of the past. And so as we say often, man, I just feel like as you read the story of Jesus and as you see him doing these things, what he's ultimately doing is he's giving a glimpse of what is to come. Like in saying the kingdom of heaven is coming near and in healing a woman like this, Jesus is saying that ultimately it will come about that these things will no longer be a thing, right? That there won't be old women stooped over, unable to stand up. There won't be people who are demon possessed. There won't be people who have leprosy. There won't be people who are blind or infirm. Those things will be gone. Why? Because God will bring about full restoration through Christ. Verse 17 says, As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. So they're amazed by what happens. And then Jesus basically wins the argument. And everybody like celebrates, like everybody rejoices that the leaders in the synagogue have been put down by Jesus. And so here's what's fascinating to me. This story is in many ways a very typical Jesus story, right? He's, he's teaching. He heals somebody. He makes religious leaders mad. I mean, this is just what Jesus does. But it's what happens next that's so interesting to me. Look at verse 18. He said, therefore, first of all, he goes on teaching, by the way. After all this happens, after like a public argument with the leader of the synagogue, after healing this woman, he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? Now, now, isn't that interesting? Like something has happened here. In, in, in these moments, that makes Jesus say, so what about the kingdom of God? Notice the therefore. You've probably heard the old adage, what is the therefore, therefore? What is the kingdom of God like? To what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. What? Like, think about what has just happened here. A woman has been supernaturally healed. That's not like an everyday occurrence, y'all. Jesus has rebuked the religious leaders, the respected religious leaders in this synagogue, And therefore, this is what he teaches. Like, what is this all about? Imagine just being in that crowd and witnessing this healing and the back and forth and, and then hearing this. Like, what is Jesus saying? Well, this is actually perfectly in line with Jesus's other teachings on the kingdom, which basically say the kingdom of God is not small. That's not what he's trying to say. It's not that it's small. It's that it's hard to see. The kingdom of God is hard to see, even though it is infiltrating everything. Like that, this is the analogy. This is the metaphor that he's throwing out there. If you have on the, like the glasses of this world, you quite possibly will miss this. Right? If you are seeing this through the lens of 
human nature, through the lens of your selfishness, through the lens of the flesh, through the lens of this world, then it's quite possible you will miss this. This is why on multiple occasions, Jesus says things like, you must have eyes to see, you must have ears to hear. If you're actually going to perceive what I'm talking about, then something has to be different about you. If you're just going after the stuff of this world, then you're going to blow right by this and miss it. It isn't small, but it's hard to see. And, and he uses a number of different analogies throughout the scriptures to say the same thing. He talks about it being a narrow gate, right? That it, it doesn't seem like the gate I would want to go through. He talks about it being a narrow road, like there's better roads seemingly. Like when I look at it, it doesn't, is this right? Like, is this really what you want me to do? In this account, and I think, I think this is the reason that therefore is there. I think in this account, the reason is that the ruler of the synagogue simply does not see what these other people are starting to see. Right? The fact that a group of people is rejoicing over what's happened. And yet this person who supposedly is you know, seemingly like closer to God than maybe these other folks, that he doesn't get it at all. The crowds catch a glimpse of the power of the inbreaking kingdom of God, power to heal, power to change lives, and they rejoice. The ruler only sees something that upsets his preconceived framework. And so he feels like he has to fight it. Like he feels like he has to push back against it. My concern for us guys here in the South, in light of all of this, my concern for us here in Shreveport, in the Bible Belt, that many people have the appearance of faith. Many people have the appearance of faith. They go to church now and then. They baptize their kids. They celebrate Easter. They have the appearance of faith because it is culturally encouraged here. I mean, you can go to many other parts of the country and find that it is decidedly post-Christian. Right? It is no, there's no longer any sense of cultural expectation. For people to be involved in religious things. If anything, in many parts of the country, there's a, a disdain for those things. Like, like people look down on you as if you're just a moron. Like, why would you do that? Here in the South, though, we have the opposite thing going on. Like, even though our country as a whole is becoming post-Christian, we're, we're one of the holdouts where Christian culture is stu- still a thing. And, and we're people who maybe don't even believe in Jesus do things like go to church, right? That's an anomaly. I don't don't know that all of us have like a perspective for that, but that's an anomaly um, when you consider the rest of our country. And so so my concern for us is you have these folks where there's, there's the appearance of faith, but the real pursuit of their lives is not the kingdom of God. Like they're engaged in religious things, but the real pursuit of their life is not following Christ. The real savior that many people are going after isn't Jesus. It's money, it's power, it's sex, it's success, it's notoriety, it's comfort, it's materialism, it's political figures. Like you could make a big list of the stuff that many of us are chasing after, thinking that we are going to find a savior or thinking that we're going to find some kind of hope. And sometimes that dualism is just glaringly obvious. And sometimes it's a little bit veiled. 
So the question is, what do we do in light of these things that Jesus is teaching about the kingdom? What do we do? Because ultimately what we're facing today is in many ways the exact same thing that Jesus was facing. Our culture in some ways is very similar to Jesus's culture in that his culture was a highly religious culture. So what is our task in the midst of this? I want to give you two things as I close. First of all, we have to actively be putting on the glasses of the kingdom and taking off the glasses of this world. We have to come to see this upside down paradigm of Jesus and we have to pursue Jesus as our primary hope. Like the scriptures we read earlier today were mostly about Israel and like the passage from Jeremiah that we read. It was God saying to the people of Israel through the prophet Jeremiah, rather than trusting me, rather than finding your hope in me, rather than finding your provision in me, you have gone after all of these other things thinking that they are real. Like you have gone after other gods. Baal is mentioned. You've gone after Baal thinking that that is real. And, and one of the things that is true from the beginning of Scripture to the end of Scripture is that there is truth and most people don't want to hear it. Most people want to find their own way. Most people want to find their own truth. I want to be the Lord and master of my own life rather than submitting to the true Lord and master of the entire universe. And so in the Old Testament and Jeremiah, I mean, all throughout the Old Testament, it's God going, guys, like, look at everything I've done for you. Like, look at these miracles. Look at the way that I've provided for you. Look at the things I want to do for you. Look at the way that I brought you through these battles and vanquished these people that were your foes. Look at what I've done. Why? After all of that, why do you do this? Why do you believe a lie? Why do you forsake the truth and believe a lie? And the same thing is happening in Jesus' day. Jesus is saying, look, here's the truth. The kingdom of heaven is coming near in and through Christ. There is a world that exists outside of this world. And it is in that world where there is real life. There is no death. There is no brokenness. There is no, you know, crippled old ladies. Those things are not there. That's what's actually real. But... If you don't have eyes to see it, then you're going to have a big problem. We have to be actively putting on the glasses of the kingdom. And, and it's challenging because we're sinners, right? It's challenging because we struggle with these same things. Even those of us who know and love Jesus and who seek to follow him, we still struggle with our own sin. So a couple things. This is why Jesus has given us the Holy Spirit. This is also why Jesus has given us the church. The Holy Spirit is our guide and our counselor. He leads us. Part of our life in Christ is about learning to listen to the Spirit and to be obedient to the Spirit. Then he's also given us each other. This is why you need this. If we're going to put on the glasses of the kingdom, if we're going to see life through the lens of Jesus then you need this. You need time together with the body of Christ. You need the relationships. You need the teaching. 
You need the proclamation of the gospel. We need to be reminded of those things. You need to sing and worship to God. And in singing and worship to God, you need to be reminded that God is real. Right? That this isn't some, some big guy up in the sky. This isn't some figment of our imagination. As we sing, we remember that this is truth. You need the confession. You need to be honest with yourself. We're actually called to confess our sins to one another in the New Testament. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine a, an environment where that actually happened? Many of us struggle to even confess our sins to God. That's part of the reason why we do the prayer of confession every week. It isn't meant to be some ritual. It's meant to be something that we engage as a practice every day. Because every day we are called to repent and to turn to him. You need all of these things. And the intention of all of these things is that our attention, our focus, would be turned from the cares of this world, the pursuits of this world, be turned from our fears and anxieties and, in, and instead turned towards the truth of the gospel. That we would put ourselves in a situation every week and maybe multiple times a week together where we are reminded of the real story and who we really are. And no, this isn't perfect. Like our, this, this is not perfect. It, it's never going to be perfect. If you're looking for a church that is perfect, then you're looking for something that doesn't Exist. If you're looking for a church experience that's free of challenges or free of like relational struggles or free of things that you don't like, you are looking for something you will never find because it isn't real. We are all sinners. We are all in need of a savior. And it's because of the fact that we are all sinners who all need a savior that we are able to rejoice together in the same way at the supernatural thing that has been done for us in Christ. Because if you want to take this and make it a metaphor, we are the people who were stooped over, whom because of Christ have been made straight. And how could we not rejoice? How could we not then want other people to know that there is truth outside of the things of this world and the truth has the power to not only heal spiritually, but also has the power to heal physically and eternally. So we have to be putting on the glasses of the kingdom. And then last, we have to guide other people to see what we are seeing. We have to guide other people to see what we are seeing. The work of being an ambassador of reconciliation is the work of unveiling the kingdom through how you live your life. Through your everyday. If you are of another place... You're not a citizen of this world, but a citizen of the kingdom. Your life will look different. If you are guided by the values of the kingdom, your life will look different. In the story today, Jesus isn't just healing a woman. He is unveiling the kingdom, right? He's kind of pulling back the curtain on what is. He's saying this is what it's like in the kingdom. This is why the mission of the church is to make disciples. Disciples aren't just people that go to Bible study. Disciples are people who are making Jesus the orienting center of their lives. Right? That rather than allowing the world to orient my values or my desires or the things that I think are good or profitable, I'm actually allowing Jesus to be my orienting center. And there's no way that your life doesn't look very different 
than everybody else when suddenly that is true of you. So he has sent us with the message of the gospel, that gospel message of reconciliation, to declare to people and demonstrate to people that there is truth. And the truth truly can set us free from the brokenness of this world. This is not just like a get out of hell free card. This is also about reorienting our lives around him. And as you and I reorient our lives around him and pursue him in that way, let us go to him in prayer and let us come to the table in a moment as well and be reminded of what he has done for us and the new life and the hope outside of this world that is extended to us through Christ. Let's pray.